I believe that is just a universal pest. These dumb fucks who show up at a protest, and I, I do think you're right. I don't think they give half of a shit about what the protest is about. They Definitely just not. want to break stuff. I was at a protest for DC statehood, and there are these motherfuckers <laughs> in the back, like throwing, picking up trash cans and like trying to get the, this is a while ago, newspaper boxes unchained from the light posts. It's oh, like, yeah, motherfucker. Yeah. What, what does that have to do with anything? What does that have to do with state sovereignty? <laughs> there is a distinctly French flavor about this. Uh, you know, because in America, you've got, you've got, you know, you've got your fiery but mostly peaceful protests. It's not like Americans don't know how to do a riot. God help us, we are going to talk about Donald Trump. He's just committed so many crimes. Like, obviously, <laughs> it's coming down to paying hush money to an adult performer. Well, thank you for putting the image of naked Donald Trump in all of our heads, Thomas. You already, I, had, you already had that. I hope. <laughs> We're back to wondering whether, you know, it's better or worse to have Trump or DeSantis. Racists love to have non-white <laughs> partners, apparently, and children. <laughs> so um, I'm still wrapping my head around this. We call people racist too much. We just do it at the drop of a hat. She popped up to call you and Yasha Monk unfuckable. Am I... Am I interpreting that right? Good luck with your weird sex life. Have fun, Professor. Hi, I'm Thomas Chatterton Williams. And I'm Jeff Chatterton Mauer. I'm a writer. And I'm a comedian. And we host a podcast called Wrong Think. More of a question than a comment. In addition to being more of a question than a comment, it is also more of a podcast we want people to know about than just two guys talking into a microphone for no reason. So we'd like to ask you to please subscribe to the show. If you like the show, please share it with your friends. If you don't like the show, then please punish your enemies by sharing it with them. And also please rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. Grinder, we got a lot of listeners on Grinder. The Wrong Think Podcast. Thinking, except bad. <laughs> Thomas Chatterton Williams, can I call you Thomas Chatville de Guillaume? Oh, you're getting Ooh. you're getting closer. I worked closer. on that all week because you are sometimes French. So French I right thought now. I would hew towards the French pronunciation of your name. Is that I even replaced ton with veal as they do? <laughs> I just caught that. Are. That was a grenade uh, joke right there. <laughs> Chatville. Chatville. I like it. I like it. I can dig it. Okay, well, I'm not sure how I feel about it if you like it, so I'm not going to use it. TC Dubs, how's it going this week? You having a good week? TC Guillaume's, TC Dubs. I'm I'm having a good (laughs) week. TCG. (laughs) TCG. TC to G. What's up? Good week? Good week. Strange week. I'm I'm in Paris this week uh, with my children, and there's a bit of rioting going on, a bit of protesting going on, some mayhem in the streets. It's, it's, It's... it's deeply Parisian right now, but it's it, it's it's a kind of Paris that I don't think it's my favorite side of Paris. Okay, would you say there's more protesting and rioting than usual in Paris? Yes, yeah, it, it's nothing that we there. haven't seen before, but it's more than usual. For one real quality of life example, the you know there are a lot of nationwide protests going on and strikes, but one of the strikes that you really feel is the garbage strike. And so in hmm. certain parts of Paris, certain arrondissements, there's private garbage pickup. And in certain arrondissements, like where I live, uh, it's city dependent. And hmm. I think it's a public health hazard at this point. I mean, the garbage is stacking up in the streets to where it's hitting up the, like the first, the second floor window, you know? 
of, of, okay. of buildings. It's it's crazy. They're around. And how high? How high is the garbage garbage in Paris normally? Can you normally it's like waist high feet? or meters meters? I suppose. <laughs> Did you say waist like high? One or two meters. This is like five <laughs> or six meters, maybe. You know, this is crazy. Okay, so bad times. Well, we, we're going to talk about France. This is going to be this is going to be a very French heavy episode. But first, I want to talk about something oh, that la. does not matter whatsoever. Is that okay? Why not? It's your podcast. It's it, well, it's, it's half yours, but it's half mine. So today, today I get to complain about nothing. What I want to complain about is a guy on Twitter said Meg White wasn't a good drummer. Meg White from the White Stripes. He said Meg White was not a good drummer. And Twitter freaked the fuck out. Jack White posted a poem on his Instagram. In my opinion, the least persuasive form of persuasion, a poem on Instagram. But he posted a poem on Instagram defending Meg White's drumming. A lot of people came out of the woodwork saying, no, she's a great drummer. She's fantastic. Even though... Okay, I, I don't know how much you know about drumming. I play the drums a bit. She's not. She's just kind of not. And a lot of people made the argument, you know, oh, it's not about virtuosity and, you know, how quickly you can play and all your fills and things, which I completely agree with. It is, you know, sometimes less is more. Sometimes it's just about your even swag. According to, yeah. to that metric, she's, she's just not that great. And I thought, when I read this, I thought about how many times I have made jokes about Ringo Starr. <laughs> jokes where I have written dozens, if not hundreds of jokes about Ringo Starr, where the, the upshot of the joke is always that like Ringo was lucky to be there, right? <laughs> Which is the take that everyone agrees on with the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. I have never gotten any, put, nobody ever cares when I write, you know, several of them have gotten on TV, a few ended up on my blog. Nobody cares when I write jokes about Ringo. This defense of Meg White, it was so gendered like people were obviously sometimes uh, doing it because they're like because she's one of the very few female drummers yeah and they're like no you can't say that about her i just thought it was unbelievably condescending can't isn't shouldn't you just treat her the same way as any other but then artist? you would have equality that would be actually looking for equality which is not <laughs> the e-word that we look for but wait but wait who played the drums on seven nation army because those those went kind of hard uh meg white played them. meg, meg white played okay, on I'm, everywhere. I, I don't know i'm i'm not as deep in the game as you are but that th those drums banged no i would disagree i would respectfully oh. disagree but this is exactly the type of debate you can have about a piece of music it's got to be okay right to say that i don't think the drums were that good I mean, they're be fine able to say that. they're fine you've got to be able to say that i mean uh, if yeah. you can't if certain people can't be criticized, then you can't actually have an honest debate about equality. I mean, it, it, you're making a joke, but it's actually a serious point. I mean, it's one of the things that drives John McWhorter, Glenn Lowry, a lot of people that have been commenting on the kind of racial condescension that happens when yeah. you can't judge a non-white writer by the same standards that you would want to judge a white writer by for one instance. I mean, it, it's, it, it's actually not the type of uh, defense that you ever want to have come <laughs> when, 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 you're, when your uh, work is being critiqued, you know? I would think it would be humiliating. Yeah. I, I would be devastated if I, if I was her in this instance. And I don't, you know, I don't want to say that everyone who says, oh, she's a good drummer was, you know, doing it because she's a woman. I know that a lot of people just have that opinion. That's fine. What but yes, I would find it devastating. Right now? Because she's been in the game for a long time. What sparked this debate right now? Just, just some guy on Twitter who apologized. Like, what sparks everything nowadays, right? Yeah, <laughs> just I'm a sure. guy on Twitter. Just, just a guy on Twitter. Yeah, and yeah. like, it, it also should be noted, like the guy just tweeted out, a, out an opinion. You got to be able to have an opinion about a piece of music, right? He didn't buy thirty seconds during the Super Bowl. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't publish an article in the New York Times. It was just an opinion on Twitter. Yeah, you can't People have an walk. opinion on Twitter these days, though. 
Yeah, I guess. All right. Should we talk about stuff that matters? Well, you know, music matters, but I'm, I'm down to change it up. Okay. Let's talk about stuff that matters arguably, arguably more than the drumming in uh, mid-2000s rock songs. <laughs> we are going to talk about what they're doing in Florida to curtail campus speech. That's all they do in Florida these days is curtail campus speech and host the World Baseball Classic, it seems. Those two things. We're going to talk about a professor who is eccentric, even by the standards of a philosophy professor. God help us, we are going to talk about Donald Trump because we can't avoid it. But first, let's talk about France. Thomas, you're you're French sometimes. Are you French right now? I'm at the moment, I'm French. I won't be come Friday, but right now I am. Très bien. You, yes, you, so you're in Paris, covered in trash. There are... <laughs> trash up to the windows. <laughs> more, more trash than average and more rioting than average. Can you, can you please tell us about the riots? What's, what, yeah. what are they and what are they about? There's a very specifically French way of rioting and protesting, you know, and certainly not all, just like in the American context, not all protesters are rioters by any means. But whenever there's some protests going on, there's some rioting and some what the French call like these people are called casseurs, like breakers. They're just guys, mm. mostly guys, who show up whenever some political manifestation is going on. And they're not just even there necessarily to take the iPhone. Sometimes they'll break, break into an Apple store or something that at least makes sense. But most of the time, they just want to actually ruin things. They want yeah. to for example, you know, in a way that most American riots don't actually devolve. Anytime some protests are going on in France, like vehicles burn. Like just mm-hmm. outside my house, like the last time, straight up like just a motorcycle set on fire on the block and it, it melds into the curb. You know, it's like a nasty, mm-hmm. gnarly uh, thing that happens. But what they also do is they light like these big plastic garbage bins on fire and that burns in the, in the most toxic way and it melts into the street as well. And the garbage is on fire, and it's just it's just really unpleasant. So there were no fires in my street. There there have been fires around, but in my street on Tuesday night, not so long after Macron pushed through his uh, his, his bill raising the retirement age from sixty two to sixty four, and then surviving uh, a no confidence motion in the House of Represent the equivalent of the House of Representatives, there was kind of like a lot of commotion in the streets. And I looked out my window around ten thirty or eleven. On Tuesday night, and there were like 20 to 30 guys, mostly in black, uh, dressed in black hoodies and stuff, throwing every single towering pile of trash into the main thoroughfare out there. I mean, it was actually, it was insane. And then as soon as they get down the block and the whole street is covered with refuse, then like, I would say like 15 to 20 paddy wagons came screeching down the street and swerving, almost crashing because there's so much garbage, lamps, mattresses, all this thrown in the middle of the street. Uber Eats, Deliveroo, brothers on bicycles are damn near falling, <laughs> damn near spilling their deliveries. Yeah. Random people trying to get home, like riding their bikes are, are having trouble. I mean, it, they're, they're massive mayhem in the street. And then, you know, the, the image that really capped it off for me, you know, because on the one hand, this is a politically motivated. We're trying to be supportive of, of people's right to protest, uh, you know, a kind of change in their um, expectations of when they can retire that, you know, that's a very serious thing. But at the yeah. end of the day, the image that I see is an old woman when all of the police have gone by, no, not a single police stopped to get out of the car and move any of the garbage. The cashier have made their way through and they're onto another block, screaming, laughing. You know, it's, it's actually, it sounds like a party. 
And just one lone old woman with her dog walking ends up walking into traffic and slowly pulling the bins back and trying to pull a broken lamp out of the way of some bicycle lane. And that's what just a ha- what a haunting image worthy of you know? classic French cinema. It is it's that almost as Tuesday. if you, you spotted a young lad chasing a red balloon among the wreckage. <laughs> so as to personify how humanity continues even amidst chaos. Yeah. Um, did you did you by chance film that in black and white? In which case you could score it to some accordion music and submit it to Khan and probably win. <laughs> yeah. I'm coming for I'm coming for for <laughs> for the Palm nice. Door next year. So Sounds like a magical city, by the way, and I can understand why people want to pay top dollar to live there and uh, be amongst the trash and the rioting. I got to say, those those fuckers who just show up and break things, those I, I, I believe that is just a universal pest. These dumb fucks who show up at a protest, and I, I do think you're right, I don't think they give half of a shit about what the protest is about. They Definitely just not. want to break stuff. They're just looking for a bit of cover so they can break stuff. I remember, this is like 20 years ago, but I was at a protest for D.C. statehood. And there are these motherfuckers in the back, like throwing, picking up trash cans and like trying to get the, this is a while ago, newspaper boxes unchained from the light posts. It's oh, like, yeah, motherfucker, yeah. What, what does that have to do with anything? What does that have to do with state sovereignty? <laughs> yes, no, nothing. It's just there was a crowd there. And they're just sitting in between protests. They're just sitting at home going, oh, I can't wait until I can throw a trash can through a Starbucks window. And you know, these are some of the laziest laziest no count fools in the society but somehow they they, count no count big words (laughs) but somehow they are they've got google alerts or something whenever there's a protest happening they're there on like they're there asap they're there before i know there's a protest going on and i'm reading the news i mean they're they're always out when it's time to break something there is a distinctly french flavor about this (laughs) You know, because in America, you've got, you've got, you know, you've got your fiery, but mostly peaceful protests. It's not like Americans don't know how to do a riot, but the French are a little bit different. You know, Americans have guns. It can get, it can go sideways really severely in America. Doesn't quite do that in France, but it stays at this level of hostility (laughs) and animosity and kind of just nastiness, malevolence, where it's just like, I'm not going to shoot you. I don't even have the means to shoot you, but I will light. 20 cars on fire on this block, you know, and I'll just make this neighborhood miserable. I'll break Sounds every window. Sounds chic the way they're doing it. Sounds <laughs> chic and refined. I'm, as an American, I, I feel uh, I'm intrigued. Sounds very uh, shishi the way they're doing it. But let, let's talk a little bit about what they are protesting about, or at least yeah. since we've kind of separated the protesters. What the protesters the are actually protesting rioters, about. Yeah. yeah, what the actual protesters are upset about is... Uh, is a tweet. Macron. They're upset about a tweet. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, besides the Meg White tweet, they're, they're surely up in arms about that. They are also protesting uh, the president raising the retirement age to... I, did you, 29? Is it now in France? What did you say they raised it to? <laughs> Oh man, uh, it's, 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 I'll tell you this, it's an age that feels now that I'm in my forties, it feels a little bit young. I mean, I think that there's a kind of national and you know, you can't, you can, you can national characteristics or descriptors only go so far, but there's a national kind of approach to the idea of work that mm-hmm. is distinctly French and would be very different from their neighbors just across the channel in the United Kingdom, different than their neighbors just over the border in Germany, different than their cousins and brothers and sisters in Belgium. They have a very distinctly French way of thinking about 
work-life balance, some of it is actually, you know, kind of amazing. When I first moved to France in 2011, I was young, married guy, stressed about, you know, being an immigrant. How do I work enough? And March would come around the first year and it was like all of (laughs) the people that you know would start sending these emails and text messages like, um, okay, it's time to find the house for August that we'll rent. Uh, who's in? I say, what is this March? Like I've got rent to pay. I, like, I, I don't know what, what you're talking about August. And it's like, yeah, yeah, you have to plan your August or all of the houses will be gone because we take August off, you know, and it took me two or three summers sure to did. allow myself to get into that. And once I did, I was like, this, this is amazing. You know, th- this actually, if you actually just fully embrace that level of work-life balance, it can do a lot of wonders for you. You know, Americans are overworked and they do work too long. My dad hasn't even admitted to himself that he's retired at 85. My mom huh. only retired at 75 and she was, she was happy going to work. I mean, I think she, I think we can have a bigger discussion about what capitalism does to people and how people buy into their own exploitation. But, you know, she liked having right. a place to go. She liked being useful. Well, it's very well, talk- different in France. Let's talk about work-life balance because this is—it's—it's it's not just a general sense of how things are in France. They—they they were, I was joking, obviously about twenty-nine. They were trying to raise, the, and they did. Macron did raise the retirement age from sixty-two to sixty-four. In most of Europe, it is sixty-five. Right. So they are—they are still one year earlier than most of Europe. But a lot of the uh, unrest about this in France, and it is this move is unpopular. It's an unpopular move. Macron could not get Parliament to back him. It looked like they were going to, but then they didn't. So he had to use an uh, well. I don't want to say seldom used because he's been using it somewhat frequently. But a clause in the Constitution that allows him to legally pass a law by fiat. It's awfully. Seems awfully dicey. Americans have executive orders, so maybe we shouldn't uh, be too critical. But the upshot is the age of retirement has gone up by two years in France. Work, the work-life balance for the nation has changed. And this brings us straight into our Who is Thomas Fighting With on Twitter this week segment. <laughs> it all lines up. It always we, lines up. It, it's, you know, it's easy to line any topic up with a fight you're getting on in Twitter, on Twitter, Thomas. So why don't you tell us about the fight you got in this week? So, you know, it's going back to what I was talking about with this, you know, this slow acclimation process I've had over the past 12 years in France with my American sensibilities, getting used to people having vastly different views about work and the separation of one sense of self within the workplace and one sense of self in the wider life. I think Americans are much more or much less compartmentalized, maybe I'd say. So, you know, I I kind of, you know, without thinking it through very much because it's Twitter, um, it's not an essay. I tweeted thinking of, you know, some of the office workers, I know parents of, of friends I have who, you know, retired at 60. The moment they turn 60, you know, they typically would expect 75% of their uh, salary uh, for life at that point in the form of a pension. And these are people that, you know, some of them will live to be 90. Some of them will live to be 95. You know, there are friends, grandparents I know who are in that situation. It's strange to think that someone worked for 35 years and then will collect 35 years of 75% of their salary for the 35 years that they worked. So I'm thinking of that and I tweet this French, this typically French desire to retire uh, as soon as possible and then spend the next decade or two or three decades finally really doing what you want to do never made sense to me because 
work, my, my work is foundational to my sense of self. I assume that, and I just hope that in this like age of AI innovation, there will still be work to do for, for most of us. You know, that's like, that's what I'm more worried about than rushing to retire in yeah. what seems like a really close amount of time, 20 years. I, I can see why people, uh, jumped down your throat about this because you, you, you write for the, you write for the Atlantic and you're a philosophy professor. If, you know, I used to be a temp, I used to work at Wendy's. I worked, I worked at a video store cause I'm a million years old. That's like saying I drove a steamboat at this day and age. But, um, obviously there are some jobs you work just to work. And when you hit the point where, where you're allowed to not do it anymore and you have enough money, you go hooray. And then you lay on the couch until you die basically. But that's, <laughs> but it might be, it might be quite, counter, a long, but... quite a long time. No, yeah. I feel you. And that was so, you know, when whatever account picked up on it that wanted to, you know, use the tweet as a talking point for how out of touch, you know, me specifically or writers in general or whatever the, the issue was using the tweet to make a statement about how working class people are not even taken into account. Well, that's true. You know, when I think about, you know, manual labor, certain types of jobs that are really taxing on the body or just usually have employees beginning in their teens, even uh, retiring at 62 is not crazy. And actually, you know, to be fair, Macron, of course, there are all types of provisions in the law that account for people that work in the railways and different types of professions that do still get that special consideration to retire early. So it's not as though everybody is uh, having their situation changed. And in France, you know, you to be fair to Macron as well, you have always had these kind of provisions for certain types of work that were put in place 100 years ago when you might work on the SNCF on the rail on the railroad and you would retire at 52 i i believe was That's the age sweet. yeah and with full yeah. pension but you you might not expect to make it to 60 and so you have a society when, now yeah, where yeah when was that put in place because if that was put in place in you know in the 20th 1888, century it's like who lives to 52 <laughs> the king nobody else <laughs> no it's like 1920s 30s this these types well, of not far off not far, but life was very different. And the, the railroad was a very type, different type of work. But you still have um, people under those protections being able to get full pension in their 50s. Yeah. That's, well, that's think- unsustainable. That's crazy. And also the work isn't uh, nearly as taxing as it was. So I'm of two minds about this. You know, Macron has a point that France is an, out, an extreme outlier. And I think that, you know, the protesters would say that they agree France is an outlier and that's something worth, you know, taking the fight to the streets to preserve because they don't want to be like everybody else. Yeah. Well, I think there are two questions here. The first is whether work is fundamental to a sense of self. And I think it's just going to depend on the person, isn't it? I think you clearly feel, and I would agree, that work is in some way fundamental to my sense of self. It's hard to imagine not working Ask me again when I'm 65. I might have a totally different opinion. <laughs> I, I might, and, and I, and I, I'm of the age that I will play video games my entire life. So I might just say, "Fuck it, I'm gonna you know sit on the couch with my PlayStation 12." You can pay me 75 percent of my salary to sit on my couch playing video games. Yeah, that's pretty. What? I mean, it doesn't sound doesn't sound awful. Doesn't sound awful. So, so I certainly understand work is not foundational to everyone's sense of self, and that's normal and fine. But then the second question is, how affordable is it to let people retire at a certain age? Now. You know, I'm not French, not even part French like you. I haven't broken down their budget and I don't want to comment on their politics because they don't need an American commenting on their politics. But there is always the question of, 
can you afford it? Because yeah, retiring at 62 is nice. You know what's even better? Retiring at 61. You know what's even better? Retiring at 55 or 30 <laughs> you know or 40. You know, why not, just, <laughs> not even yeah. working in the first place. Right. Why, not, why not retire at 25? The answer is because you can't afford that. And I did think you got, of all the people who dragged you on Twitter, and I always set this up like, oh, tell me about your Twitter fight. I know your Twitter fights. I'm, watch, I'm, I'm lurking in the corner watching your Twitter fights, Thomas. Them shits are going viral. <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> unfortunately it's all first of all it's always because people just people just don't like you they they are your political opponents you know they well, don't yeah, like you're you not gonna get the faith. Letters, you're not gonna get good faith like oh let me read this in the most generous way but you know i you know i i did i'll just say it was one of those occasions where i said you know getting a lot of pushback on on this tweet some people are really nasty about it it's twitter that's fine yeah uh, you don't say. but a lot of people are actually you know saying really moving testimony about how, you know, they feel alienated at their work or, you know, they, they had a, they, they, they were working really tough jobs and that they wish they could be in a society where they could have some respite. And that is something that is to be admired. And, you know, I did, I, I did that seriously. So I, you know, I said, you know, it was, it was a somewhat unimaginative tweet and, you know, y'all have changed my mind and, you know, I won't delete it because I think that that's crazy. You know, I'll just leave it up there and I'll take yeah, the criticism, it but it, well, like my bad, y- y'all are right. Man. Like touche. Uh, you know, you, you I agree. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad you could find the legitimate point in there amidst the sea of uh, people who just don't like you for other reasons, because yeah. I, I think you're right. Work is not foundational to everyone's sense of self. And that's fine. A lot of jobs. Do you work to live or live to work? I mean, we have an expression about this, but I would like to draw attention to probably the, biggest clown who dragged you on Twitter. And that, of course, Which would be one? Nathan J. Robinson. Who? If you're oh, not familiar yeah. with Nathan, oh, Nathan J. Robinson, listeners, uh, don't bother becoming familiar with Nathan, Nathan J. Robinson. Your life is just better not knowing about this guy. But <laughs> I consider him a clown. He wrote an article in Current Affairs in which he quoted you. And this is what Nathan J. Robinson wrote in Current Affairs. They, meaning, meaning the French, don't believe that people's lives should be spent toiling until they are near death. They believe long retirements ought to be a right. And they're correct. This mindset drives me insane. It is like the most childlike view of how economies work, how in this case pensions work, where you just declare it to be a right. You just say, it's a right. It's a right to retire at 62. End of story. And there's no question of, can you afford that? Where does the money come from? It drives me a little bit nuts when people flatten the issue that badly. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to say. I mean, and then they say that, you know, well, it's just about priorities. You just, you know, the money could come from just raising taxes specifically on wealthy people. But um, can, can, I, can, can I jump in? Yeah. France has the highest taxes as a percentage of GDP in the entire OECD. Right. Oh, it's, the highest. Oh, Higher than Scandinavia. But continue. It's not just for wealthy people. It's for what most Americans would consider like tiers of the middle class, you know, yeah. taxed in a way that, you know, is, is pretty, is pretty tough. So it's always easy to say that somebody else should pay more taxes so that you can have that thing that is right or that you want. Um, but now like, so in all seriousness though, I don't know. I mean, salaries in Paris, I mean, Paris is a pretty expensive town these days. The The cost of living has gone up quite a lot in this century. Um, rapidly. It's, it's quite the not, trash of the rioting. Yes. <laughs> It's not as expensive as New York, but it's really expensive to live in. And teachers at my daughter's public school are pulling down something like 1,800 euros a month. 
uh, in their fifties, you know, which is actually shocking. You know, they, they, they do provide a high quality public education, but you can't live in Paris. That's not very much. No. So the urge to kind of protest and fight for a better work life balance and for just better working conditions in general, like I, I definitely am sympathetic to that. I think that there's a kind of culture of striking and, and of grievance that uh, ends up actually making life kind of difficult for, for just normal people, just people trying to take their kids to school and, and, and be able to plan that they can take a train. So everybody kind of really feels it when people are fighting for their rights. But a lot of French people find that to be like just a sense of solidarity that they wouldn't want to give up as part of their culture. So I, you know, I don't, I don't mean to be too glib and dismiss it, but you know, there's something about this vision of just having a pension for 30 years and nothing to do uh, and no sense of purpose that seems to me kind of terrifying. And the kind of nasty comments always get the most traction on Twitter, but I was getting messages from people that were, you know, self-identifying as construction workers, blue collar, you name it, office workers saying that, you know, like, no, that that's a fine way of thinking about things. I hope that I'll be able to like work with my hands uh, beyond the age of 62 and I want to, and I don't want to stop working. So work, it's a key question. Like, who are we? Who are we without work? What does our work do to us? How do we feel about our work? I mean, we're not going to solve that in a podcast, but it's something that I, you know, it, it gave me quite a lot of food for thought because I kind of take for granted that if you're not satisfied through your work, it's going to be very difficult to be satisfied in a lot of other ways. And I guess just an enormous amount of people don't necessarily feel that way. And so, you know, it's always, it's always good to confront your own blind spots, right? Yeah. You know, you, you perhaps learned a little something this week about how shitty a lot of people's jobs are. My granddad was a <laughs> construction worker for more than 40 years and retired and then couldn't stop building stuff. Right. And was always just putting an addition onto his house, an addition onto my house. I mean, actually, my sister's house. I, I unfortunately missed out on that. <laughs> and then you know what he did? He built he built lighthouses. He built little lighthouses out of plywood. They'd be you know like eight foot tall lighthouses out of two by fours and plywood, and would give them. He like gave one to his neighbor, gave one to his church. He couldn't stop working. I, however, that can can totally imagine myself just playing video games for thirty years. Really. Life. Because yeah, that, the thing that the so many people, the thing that so many people were stressing was that it's important to separate the idea of work from the idea of a job, right? That like, even if you don't have a job, you might be actually doing the work you really mean to be doing. And maybe that's these types of craft projects or whatever, or, or volunteering or, you know, being a grandparent that leans in. And, you know, I, I think that it is actually an extraordinary stroke of luck if what you consider to be the work you really want to be doing other than playing video games. <laughs> uh, I, but that, I feel like that is what I want to be actually, doing. You can get an account on Twitch, I believe, and you can get a big, you can get a big career going out of that if you're good. Um, yeah, but you know, like it, it, it's quite blessed doing. if you can align that with the thing that actually pays you with the job that you go to. And then I think, you know, you, you end up in that blessed place where you don't want to retire at 59, 62, yeah. 64, even if you're lucky. Well, check back in with me uh, when I'm older and we'll see how I feel. Uh, but, you know, I got gambling debt, so I'm going to work until <laughs> I die. All right. Let's talk about the riots that are um, likely upcoming where I live, Washington, D.C. Donald Trump might be indicted by the time this podcast airs. We are, as we record this, in this waiting period. It looks like he's probably going to be indicted, but no charges have been passed down yet. Trump, of course, is calling for 
riots in the streets. Now, I need to I need to know if that's going to happen because I live real close to the capital. So I just need to know, hey, can I go to Chipotle or is there going to be an insurrection outside? Because if it's the latter, I'm going to do DoorDash. Um, <laughs> but what do you so, I feel I have really mixed feelings about this possible Trump indictment, really mixed feelings. I feel that there are two extremely important principles here. One principle is that nobody's above the law, including the president. Nobody's above the law. He's guilty of a crime. You charge him, you try him just as you would anyone else. The second principle is that you need to be very, very, very careful about charging, trying, convicting, and jailing political figures, because of course, that is how every dictatorship does it. They go, oh my God, this guy's got so many parking tickets. He has to go to jail for 30 years and can't run against me. And I mean, that's certainly part of Vladimir Putin's playbook name, just about any strong man or strong woman, strong person. That's don't shield them from criticism. Don't shield them from criticism. I won't. I, because I respect women, I am acknowledging that they can be just as awful and dictatorial as men. And, uh, any dictator, female or male who wants to get rid of their opponents, take them off the board, takes them off with criminal charges. So those are the two competing principles here. I really struggle to know what to think about this. What, what are your thoughts on where we are with Trump right now? Well, I like there's nothing new under the sun. There's no new comment about Donald Trump, but I think I'm not the first to observe. He's just committed so many crimes. Like, obviously, <laughs> he's there's so much out there that, you know, it's not quite the equivalent of like, the dude in Russia who gets thrown in jail for the parking tickets because they had to cook that up. It's like Donald Trump yeah. could, in a fair society, have been arrested for like any number of things. This one that they're getting on, that they're trying to get him on, what concerns me about it is that it's, it's kind of weak, right? <clears throat> the man has been impeached twice for serious stuff. This is the man who was trying to extort Zelensky before that name became world famous. <laughs> you know, yeah. this is, this is, that was why he was impeached. I mean, this, this man, like, yeah, his violations go Which deep. Which many people consider the weaker of the two impeachments. <laughs> feel this, the, the violations go deep, but here we are. We're in a situation where, you know, it's coming down to paying hush money to an adult performer. And as Damon Linker on his very good Substack notes from the middle ground notes, paying hush money isn't itself illegal. So the DA will need to charge Trump with violations of campaign finance law treating the payoff as an unreported in-kind contribution to his own presidential campaign or with misdemeanors or felonies involving improper business filings connected to covering up the payment, which was made through his lawyer and personal fixture, Michael Cohen, who has already been convicted for related crimes. So you're already getting to this type of situation where more than half of Americans don't give a fuck. I'm sorry. They just, they're not going to find that to be worth throwing uh, the the yeah. leading candidate for president in the 2024 election in prison, that's going to smell wrong. It's not going to pass the smell test. I mean, it's going to be like calling a travel. If we, if we want to get back to what is really wrong in America, it's going to be like calling a travel mm-hmm. on the game winning shot. The NBA, yeah. <laughs> and there's traveling going on a lot, but there is a lot of traveling going on. But it's, you can't call that on the on, uh, in certain situations because the fans aren't going to accept it. And, 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 you know, the American public would find this to be, I don't think it's going to, I think it would backfire. Does that sound right to you? Um, I, I certainly agree that as far as like what this will mean politically is nothing, nothing whatsoever. This is not going to get people up in arms. Uh, nobody's opinion about Donald Trump is going to change based on this. I mean, you either already hated him or you already loved him. Uh, I, I agree that it's, so if you like look back to Watergate, 
there was sort of revelation after revelation after revelation. Oh my God, Nixon had a dirty tricks campaign. Oh my God, he had the plumbers. Oh my God, he had a secret mm-hmm. recording system. Oh my God, he fired the special prosecutor. Oh my, it was just thing after thing after thing. I think people who dislike Trump, and I am obviously certainly among them, keep kind of hoping something like that will happen. This is absolutely not that thing. This is not the thing that is going to make Joe Blow on the street go, oh my God, I can't believe it. Because the charges, which, you know, and there aren't presently charges, but it looks like the charges are going to be things like falsifying business records. (laughs) Are people going to get up in arms about falsifying business records? Absolutely not. That now, let me say, that doesn't mean you shouldn't bring the charges because the standard is not, is this going to move the needle politically? That is absolutely not what you should be paying attention to. You should be paying attention to, is this a good case? Is this a solid case? Like I said, nobody's above the law. You've got to try to be as clear as possible. But there are a couple things that bother me here. Let me run through them quickly. Number one, probably the best proxy for what happened uh, was John Edwards, because John Edwards Mm, also paid off. uh, (laughs) This is a similar situation. Hush, Hush money to cover up an affair. And he was at the time a presidential candidate. That was different than what Trump did because he was using campaign funds to pay the person, what Trump has done is used private funds for a campaign purpose. John Edwards was not convicted of that. Um, I believe he was acquitted of some charges and then others were dropped, is, is my memory. I, I Please Google that to make sure I'm correct. But I, I'm correct that he was not convicted of any of that. So the closest proxy we have did not result in a conviction. That's the first thing that bothers me. The second thing that bothers me is I know that campaign finance laws are notoriously fuzzy. Because there's this question of, is money being used for a campaign purpose? Okay, so if the candidate gets a haircut, is that a campaign purpose? Because he's got to look good on the campaign, right? But that's also just a thing you do in regular life. If the candidate wears a tax the rich dress to the Met Gala uh, (laughs) and doesn't pay for any of her hair, is that campaign finance violation? Uh, It's many, many, many of these things exists in a gray area. I think, I think no, because she was not running a campaign at the time. Although if you're a house member, you're always running a campaign. I don't something, know about that. Yeah. Something was definitely, that didn't pass the smell test either. Apparently. <laughs> the whole um, attending the Met Gala. Uh, what, what are the ethics of that? But that's, that's for another podcast. That's that sounds like pod. the thought, thing that doesn't matter. But, but yes, it's just, it's all very fuzzy. The, the line is extremely blurry. So these charges would have to solve that fuzziness. And that sounds like a tall order to me. And the third thing that bothers me is he, the prosecutor, I assume when the charges come out, if they come out, they haven't come out yet, is going to be prosecuting a state law with regards to a federal election. And it's not clear that you can do that. Let me read from the New York Times. It says, a New York Times review and interviews with election law experts strongly suggest that New York state prosecutors have never before filed an election law case involving a federal campaign, bringing an untested case against anyone, let alone a former president of the United States, carries the risk that a court could throw out or narrow the case. Thomas, I am but a joke elf. I am not a lawyer. I am the farthest thing from a prosecutor you could possibly be. But Jesus, this doesn't sound like a slam dunk to me. And I feel like if you're going to bring charges against a presidential candidate, a serious presidential candidate, much as that may depress me, it should be a real slam dunk. And oh, it 100%. Yeah, I think the, the damage that can be done from taking a swing and missing again. Uh, I'm not sure that people would take to the streets the way that... Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting, well, to, good, see, it they're my interesting streets. to see 
if Trump actually take take it to your streets, yeah, yeah, <laughs> People, I know that, that's that's when it gets real. That's when I care. It's interesting to see if he already if he has already lost some of that pull. Not one hundred percent sure. People were into his his midterm endorsements that were all about uh, the candidates who stressed stop the steal. You know, it seems uh-huh. that there is some fatigue of that, and I wonder if there is the potential that you know you take this swing and he doesn't actually have all that support and it's kind of showing himself to be you know no longer having clothes i i, I wonder i mean it's it's hard to it's hard to know but i wouldn't feels like a risky gamble to take um well, thank you for putting the image of naked donald trump in all of our heads Thomas. you already had I, you already had that i hope <laughs> <laughs> you you don't know that watch the, i've been of the opinion for about a year now that DeSantis is the front runner for the Republican nomination, not Trump. It's my, my TV instincts are guiding me on that, at least as much as my political instincts. I feel like people are tired of the Trump show and they don't want to get it renewed. Watch this be the thing that revives Trump's political career. Watch this, put him front and center. It'll make him a martyr. It'll be an us versus them thing or rally around the flag. Look, look what the terrible Democrats are doing. My God, I don't know. I'm I'm catastrophizing. That's the worst case scenario. But it but, also is true. I mean, it puts DeSantis, though, it would potentially revive Trump. It puts DeSantis in uh, an awkward position. Uh, he'd have to choose between authorizing an arrest warrant for Mr. Trump, uh, whose home is in Florida, or attempting in some way to aid his Republican rival uh, and possibly face legal action himself as a result. So it puts him in a real bind. So. If he's the guy to potentially take down Trump, doing this kind of ill-conceived uh, prosecution of Trump over hush money, essentially, actually could end up kneecapping the one guy that could stave off this, this Trump threat. So it seems like it could be, you know, even if it works, it's, it could be a pyrrhic victory. I mean, but we're back to wondering whether, you know, it's better or worse to have Trump or DeSantis. I'm, yeah, the jury's not, I, I still think, you, you know... I think I still, yeah, I, th- I still, I still, I still stay with where I was last time that you have to go with anything but Trump. Yeah, well, that, that's basically where I am. I, I don't presently like saying DeSantis is better than Trump because I think DeSantis is still a bit of a question mark. The way I phrased it last week is anyone who follows the basic rules of the game is better than Trump. So that means the, the basic rules of liberalism and the biggest part of that is conceding when you lose an election. If the other person wins, the other person wins. We know Trump will not do that. If DeSantis does that, anything else, you know, I might dislike him in a million other ways, but even that would be better than Trump. Trump is uniquely bad. Also, Trump, it, another thing I should add, Trump is just a moron. And with all this banking stuff that's been going on the last two weeks, I'm just glad we have a competent <laughs> president, a competent administration. I personally think they've been doing a pretty good job. That is the type of issue where it's not really an ideological issue. It's more of just knowledge and having a cool head synthesizing information, making a decision, that is not Trump's forte. I I think basic competence is an important thing and Trump sure as hell doesn't have it. Right. But then what if you're really, really competent at making all of your state's politics about like banning DEI? <laughs> Should we move on to that? Sure. I mean, because that's one thing that DeSantis has proven himself really competent and really persistent at. Yeah. Well, and this is why I I hedge what I'm willing to say about DeSantis at this point, because his record on free speech and letting people say what they think is extraordinarily crappy. It's unbelievable uh, that it's he's paltry, become this yeah. 
Yeah, he's become this culture warrior where he just goes through a list of culture war issues like, what have I done on that? What have I done on that? What have I done on that? Which you think, given the left's proclivity to censor people these days, might lead you to be Joe free speech. But he's not because he just tries to limit people in other ways. And what he's done this week, or this is actually the Florida State House, advanced a bill. This is uh, from CBS News. Advanced a bill that would ban state colleges and universities from using funds to, quote, promote, support, or maintain any programs or campus activities that espouse diversity, equity, or inclusion, DEI, or critical race theory rhetoric, end quote. What does that mean? It's incredibly vague, which is the point, right? It's going to leave college professors in a constant situation where they're asking themselves, can I say this? Is this legal? If it passed, which it is not yet. Right. And it's, this is from the the Florida House of Representatives. So it's not coming from DeSantis' yeah. desk per se, but we'll see what his reaction, what his response to the bill is. I mean, it's so vague that it has, I don't even know how to judge this, but it has uh, black sororities and fraternities in Florida wondering if they'll be able to continue operating under such a law. I mean, it, it just sows a kind of uncertainty that I think is certainly not helpful to making big pluralistic, multi-ethnic uh, states and societies work better than they do now. I mean, it, it seems that the, 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 the fundamental thing you get from this is more division, uh, more suspicion. You get tweets from anti-racist activists like uh, one Anywhere that I saw, like Ibram X. Kendi, where, you know, the response is kind of, and I guess that takes us into our, my second uh, Twitter, second Twitter um, fight, fight of we, the week. You know, we aired by starting a segment that says Thomas's Twitter fight of the week, because there are going to be multiple Twitter fights many weeks, aren't there? So, you know, why don't you, why don't you take us through your second battles, Twitter fight of the week? I don't, like, these battles, <laughs> like they come Twitter, it comes to me, you know, I was just trying to make a simple point. Hear me out. I was just trying to make a simple point, which is that I'll hear you you out. (laughs) This bill sucks. You know, I don't like these bills, but you know, there's a kind of, they inspire a kind of hyperbole too, that I don't think is going to get us towards that multi-ethnic society that works better either. Um, So Ibram X. Kendi tweeted, quote, Republican politicians in Florida oppose diversity. They oppose equity. They oppose inclusion, which is to say they support, quote, whites only and inequity and exclusion, the racism of it all. So I hate these bills, but that it doesn't follow that from these crappy, confusing bills that were back in Jim Crow in whites only spaces. In fact, the toothpaste is out of the container. A, a, a state like Florida is so diverse already that you're never getting whites-only spaces, no matter what type of legislation you pass. I mean, people, you're not getting white-only bodies in Florida. I mean, people are, are mixed all types of ways. Society is more complicated than that. It's, these yeah. are terrible bills. I, I, there is Be- some Bell, Bell and Sebastian concert might do it. But short of that, <laughs> are they I agree. <laughs> Man. I don't even know if they're still together. But yeah, short of that, uh, hard to find any all-white spaces. I mean, racism is not equivalent to whites only. I mean, you can have racism without Jim Crow segregated, you know, my dad's childhood to water fountains. I mean, that is not actually what this movement is actually doing. And I think that you don't actually oppose something as nefarious as this type of anti-DEI legislative movement that DeSantis is, is orchestrating. You don't actually oppose that effectively by crying wolf in such a way that it overstates 
uh, the threat. I think you have to be very clear eyed about exactly what the problem is so that you can oppose it effectively as opposed to making a kind of um, boogeyman that will take people back to, you know, Florida 1945. Yeah, I agree. I I feel that he has managed to overstate a thing that is nonetheless bad, which is always I'm always frustrated when that happens, because if something is bad, argue against it and explain why it's bad. When you overstate, then number one, you give your opponents something to latch on to. They can just latch on the overstatement. Number two, you cause reasonable people to go, well, that's not true, is it? Like I was, I was with you up until then. And he has kind of done that because you're right. Even if this bill happened, and I agree, this is, this is a very bad bill. That College, for the millionth time, college is a place to hear all sorts of ideas and have your thoughts challenged and hear things coming from all points of the political spectrum, all sorts of philosophical traditions. Many you will think are garbage. That is your right. But that's what happens in college. And I really, really, really don't like state legislatures and governors dictating what, (laughs) you know, and not the broad strokes, but I mean, down to a fine level of detail what's taught in college. I'm really not comfortable with that. So bad bill, bad bill. If it happened, it would be real bad. And yet it would not it would not be Jim Crow. Jim Crow. It would still not be Jim, Jim Crow. Crow would not come back. Uh, yeah. And I think it's really important to respect that distinction. And so I went a step further in my tweet and I just mentioned, I don't like these bills either, but they're not whites only. And, you know, the chief instigator of this movement, a guy called Chris Rufo, who's been advising on all this stuff and has kind of cynically made this his, his raison d'etre, I guess, to, to, to find... So much French in the pod today. There's a lot so of French. Much French. I'm in Paris right now. But, you know, he made, <laughs> he made this his raison d'etre to, to oppose wokeness, to oppose DEI. Um, every, every 10 minutes, Thomas just pipes up. I'm in Paris right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's late out here. You know, I, I, I mentioned, Sorry, you know, the, the instigator of this movement, Chris Rufo, he himself is in an interracial marriage. So you're not going to, unless you have a different conception of Jim Crow than I do, you're not going to have whites only rooms with a bunch of guys with their non-white wives and non-white children sitting around enforcing white only spaces. I mean, it's just a weird thing to do. That is where the kind of the Twitter beef came in because then I had to get like subjected to so many lectures on how the biggest racists in the world love to have black wives or Asian wives or what have you, you know, that's, that's, that's a mark of how racist you are is that you marry. It doesn't necessarily track with my personal experience. I I know Strom Thurmond, you know, Thomas Jefferson, lots of people, they didn't necessarily marry these people. But Strom Thurmond didn't have a black wife. No. He, yes, he had several children by a black woman whom he did not marry. But that's the point at which the the tweet went off the rails because yeah. the, the whole thing became, you know, that's not how yep. racism works. Uh, racists love to have non-white <laughs> partners, apparently, and children. <laughs> so um, I'm still wrapping my head around this. You know, I was I was I was lectured that this was the you know the, this is the history of slavery. I mean, it's not exactly what I'm thinking. I mean, I don't like Chris Rufo, but I don't think it's exactly what he's doing. I don't think he's in a Strom Thurmond position. I don't, uh, yeah. I, <laughs> two things. Number one, ask, maybe ask your dad, because he's an old guy and a black guy. Maybe he, he can tell us, like, is that how Jim Crow people were doing it back in the day? That they, they, they No. It's not my perception. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm from the South. It was a different era, but the older folks, uh, interracial relationships real thin on the ground, to say the least, where I was. Maybe he knows better than I do. No, but so then, you know, I was told that, of course, of course, like literally, literally, it's not whites only. It's more subtle now. 
And I think that that also that misunderstands what the actual problem is. I think that when you slap everything with the label racist and real racism that really hates gets lumped in with racism that merely, I guess, harms and maybe harms as the result of other objectives. I think that they have objectives with some of these bills that are not fundamentally to do what exactly their critics think. Then I think you, you kind of, you just obscure the conversation to the point where it's, you know, judgment requires making distinctions. You know, moral judgment requires making distinctions. You really have to be able to say that this thing here is truly racism. This is white supremacy. Yeah. This is Jim Crow. We have to, these are, these are things that have to be differentiated from each other. It's, it's really lobbing a grenade, isn't it? When mm -hmm. you call someone a racist, it's a big it charge. It's going to be real hard to ha have dialogue after that, which is, th that's the other thing I wanted to get to. I, I think we call people, and we, I mean, uh, we on the left, which I am, we, we call people racist too much. We just do it at the drop of a hat. It's tricky because you do want to call racism out, right? When you see it, see something, say of something. Of course. Yeah, of course. But we, we levy it. It's, we, we levy it so frequently. It's just a cudgel that we try to hit, hit our opponents with so frequently. I don't think it's conducive to a good political atmosphere or grounds for debate if you call everything racist or, you know, sexist, homophobic, whatever it might be. I think you should, you're better off giving your political opponents a bit of the benefit of the doubt. I think I can say to a guy like Chris Rufo, Ron DeSantis, I oppose this bill. I think this is a real bad bill. I think you are creating uh, a climate of fear in colleges. I think you are inserting the state where it doesn't belong. I think this is a bad idea. I oppose this bill. I think you can make that argument and not go the next step and say, and you are a racist and you are a bigot. That yeah, is because a, it also a misunderstands argument. what is so appealing about some of what they're doing to large swaths of voters, not all of whom are white, because DEI is not synonymous with black people, actually. Oh, DEI God, is not no. no, it's not. God, a lot it's of non-white people, white including, people. yes, it's a kind of elite white, white people. Let's be honest. A lot of non-white people, including black people, are not on board with all of the DEI uh, prerogatives. So right. to just blanket any opposition to DEI as racism, anti-black racism is already not interpreting your opponent's motives in ways that might track with the complexity of, of, of the political moment right now. It might not even take into effect just what real political instincts tell people to do in the situation where something like that is so unpopular with most Americans, you know, you don't have to be racist to realize that a lot of voters don't like having to take loyalty oaths when, when they, when they start a new yeah. job. Yeah. Well, and, and I always think it's interesting. One of the strongest affirmative responses you will get to a poll is it, it always has to do with political correctness. And, you know, are you afraid, are you afraid that you might say the, the wrong thing? People of all races answer yes to that one in, in mm -hmm. big numbers, you know, 80, 90%, any race, any demographic income, whatever, D just because everyone's afraid of saying the wrong thing. Everyone's afraid of, of doing the wrong thing. It is, as you said, it's not correct to assume that DEI equals the opinions of black people or the opinions of non-white people. It's a, it's a lot more complex. It's a that. lot more complicated than that. So I think you could have spaces to, to say it, 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 it's the equivalent of whites only. It really disappoints me because I don't like this stuff at all. I don't think you legislate ideas that you don't like away, but I think you could banish DEI and you could have lots of 
integrated spaces left over with a lot of people who are not white wanting to be there with no DEI. So but let's let, be real. Yeah. But let's, I would say, let's not ban DEI and keep the integrated spaces. That would be. I agree. I, I mean, I'm, I'm because opposed, I don't know. What, I'm a, you don't, I don't ban even know these what that things. means. I don't know what that means. Ban critical race theory. Like, I don't know what that means. What, what are the borders of that? Either. And so it ends up doing real harm. It ends up yeah. making it so a teacher is afraid to teach Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail because they're not certain if that violates uh, the new legislation or not. I mean, that's a terrible, that's a pedagogical tragedy if you can't be certain whether you can, can or cannot teach Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, uh, yeah. what country is that? This South is not Africa 30 go. years ago? What was that? I said South Africa 30 years ago? <laughs> Man, maybe that's the country that is, but that's not a country we should be emulating. Hey, speaking of academia and weird stuff ha- happening in academia, let's touch on this profile in the New Yorker by Rachel Aviv on the philosopher. Oh, more French, Agnes Callard. I mean, she's American, but that's a French. She's last American, name, right? so yeah, Agnes. I think you've got a pretty good pronunciation on it. I gave it the old college try. Why don't you take us through this one? Because this was this article was bananas. So this article was. Uh, bananas. So Agnes Callard is like, she's a philosopher, you know, pretty distinguished. She's at the University of Chicago. She writes- Where I went um, to grad school. Where you went to grad school. You, you, you got yeah, all- so I'm, on her side. I'm taking her side automatically. So, you know, she, she pops up in a lot of uh, publications I like to read. She's in the New York Times. Sometimes she writes like really, sometimes really interesting stuff in Harper's. She had a piece a couple of years ago or last year in Harper's on jealousy. Uh, about having an affair and all of her action always takes place at academic conferences that, that professors travel to. You know, that's the world really? that she moves in. Um, academic are those conferences. Apparently, Thomas, are, are they can be. conferences They can, they can be. be. Wow. I mean, I'm not, that's not my world. I'm, I'm a writer. Yeah, you're, I'm a well, writer. You're, well, you're married with kids, but you're also kind of French, but you're also kind of French. Man, <laughs> maybe that's why I'm not at the academic conferences. Um, I don't get invited to those, but... <laughs> She, she, For the sake she of your marriage, I, I assume you do not partake. In what? In the conference? No, in the fuck fest. In the fuck fest afterwards. Oh, man, you're trying to get me canceled up in here. I, I am trying to get you. I have, Thomas, let me, for the record, Thomas has never been known to partake in a philosophy <laughs> conference fuck fest, okay? Count him out. 6 p.m., he's in his room watching Sports Center. okay? Watching the riot That's outside my window. About watching DC the riots Trump. outside my window. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I, okay. I got us way, way, way off track. Uh, continue with your story of philosophy and fuckfests. So she's a, she can be an interesting writer. I, I thought her piece on jealousy in Harper's a year ago or so was really phenomenal about, um, you know, having an affair with a married man. And she's extraordinarily candid, almost to a degree that you can't believe. I mean, I think the first time I ever became aware of her was in the summer of 2020, after we published the Harper's letter and, and Twitter was a pretty lively place, she just responded to a tweet thread uh, that Yasha Monk was, was writing. And she, she popped in to say, I gave myself a philosophical experiment. Who, based on these tweets in this thread, would I uh, want to date just based on the tweets? And it wouldn't be Yasha, it wouldn't be Thomas. It, it, it's this, like, this other girl. <laughs> and it's just popped out of nowhere. It's like, who is she, this? She person? offered this. She instigated this. She instigated out of nowhere. My okay, so she like she the, po- she popped up to call you and Yasha Monk unfuckable. Am I am I interpreting that right? And that she would even change her orientation to avoid based on our tweets. 
<laughs> just the two of you. Just yeah. the two of you. Okay. Yeah. Burn. 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 Yeah. Bad, bad tweeting. Okay. That's the theme. But then I was like, that, you know, that's, that's, that's an interesting philosopher. And so Rachel Aviv, who's a, who's a really talented writer at The New Yorker, has this profile in her that is a kind of perplexing profile because it's not clear what justifies the profile. It doesn't really delve into Callard's work very deeply. It's really about the kind of love triangle. She's they're the polycule she set up for herself with her unbelievably cool seeming ex-husband and the grad student and scholar of Aristotle from the University of Chicago that she's fallen in love with and moved into her home with her ex-husband and all and their children. And so yes, the, I, her, her ex-husband does seem to be the most chill dude in the world because he I, is presently living with his ex-wife, her and her current husband, boyfriend, and their child that he's raising, he's helping raise their child as well as, you know what I kept thinking when I was reading this? I was like, I'll bet it's a real nice house. I'll bet it's a real nice house in, uh, in Hyde park. And you don't, you don't just give that up. (laughs) If you got like, uh, 3,500 square feet in Hyde park, you might just, uh, live with your wife and her new husband and their family. Cause, uh, it's uh, good. It's rough out there. It's rough out there. I want to read a little passage that really jumped out to me, you know, to give you Wait. a sense of the way Callard's mind works. For Christmas last year, Agnes and Arnold, the grad student that she, that she ended up marrying after, her, after Ben, her first husband. For, for Christmas last year, Agnes and Arnold and the three children went to Pennsylvania to visit his family. Agnes couldn't stop coughing and sneezing. About a week earlier, she'd had a severe allergy attack brought on by a cat and the symptoms hadn't subsided. One night, she was making pita bread, coughing every few minutes, and Arnold was sitting at a table in the kitchen, grading papers on his laptop. They were sharing the same space, but Agnes felt as if they were in two separate worlds. She was reminded of a line from the Icelandic novel, Independent People, by Haldor Laxness, which she had just read. Two human beings have such difficulty in understanding each other. There is nothing so tragical as two human beings. The next day, when I visited Agnes and Arnold at his parents' house, She told him that while making the pita, she had felt as if they were out of sync. She wished he had put down his laptop and talked to her. She was aware that something more purposeful could be happening, and the lack felt tragic. He's not paying attention to what I want him to pay attention to, she said, of that moment. He's not interested in what I want him to be interested in. She recognized that he had to grade papers, but she was still annoyed. I'm like, why didn't he do the grading earlier today, she said. I bet there was lots of times today when he was wasting time. That's probably true, Arnold said. We sat at the kitchen table and he dipped the pita into hummus he had just blended. The boys, their children, were all at the mall with his parents. Also, the thing with the coughing and the sneezing is funny because you're clearly suffering in a pretty serious way, he told Agnes. And you have been for days. And at this point, I've just faded it out. I just don't hear it anymore. Agnes said that in moments of disconnection, she repeats a little mantra to herself. It's fine. You can do this on your own. You can figure things out on your own. But she knows it's a lie. I almost have a feeling of pleasure, like a sick pleasure, as I placate with myself with the thought she told me. This profile is strange, man. This profile... This oh, is, you think? You th- think? <laughs> <laughs> strange seems apt. Strange seems apt. That, as you were reading that, it, I think it brought it back to French cinema, because that you may have just described the only scene too boring to be described by a French film artur. The <laughs> pita bread scene would get cut out of any movie at Cannes 
that is that is entirely too much nuance, I think. It's so Rachel Aviv is kind of a masterful writer because she's taking you inside the mind of essentially like a solipsist. It's quite incredible. You know, she becomes quite disillusioned when she realizes that, you know, just what most people realize in dating, which is that you meet somebody, you're really into them. And then the longer you're with them, like the passion fades a little bit in real life starts and they got to grade papers and you can't actually be one mind. And she says at points in the piece that she wants to get to the point where you can be one mind with somebody else. And it's kind of an incredible piece. I mean, you don't really understand why you're reading this other than this is someone living in a polycule in a very strange way. I mean, I don't, I still don't have a sense of what her professional philosophy really is. Yeah. That was the thing that kind of baffled me about the article. And you're right that it was interesting. It certainly was interesting. It is interesting to hear the Peterbread story from the perspective of the person who is having a crisis because their partner is not paying rapt attention to them making pita bread. That's interesting. But so all, of all I, the things to be rebuked for, that's, <laughs> that's, that's tough. I mean, the main thing, main thing I took from this article is that I should never date Agnes Collard just because I cannot give her that type of attention. I mean, I struggle to remember my wife's birthday and stuff. So if, if I need to be of one mind with her when she's making pita bread, I'm, I'm just going to fail that test and get kicked out of their presumably lovely home in Hyde Park. But I was reading the article. If you tweet a certain way, she's going to (laughs) preemptively exclude you from her list of potential (laughs) polycule partners. I am I am probably on I am in the friend zone probably already with you and Yasha Monk. But I did kind of read this article wondering, yeah, why is this article in The New Yorker? Is it just to recount all the ways in which her living situation is unusual? And, And that's where I kind of did start to have an opinion. For the record, whatever her unusual living situation is, Godspeed. She wants to live in a polycule. Her ex-husband wants to live in the house with the wife's new family. Whatevs. Good on you. It's like there, there is maybe a little bit, and I know maybe this is more in people's reaction to it than in uh, what Rachel Aviv wrote, but there is a certain amount of like, whoa, get a gander at this lady's weird sex life. Right. I feel if, if it's consenting adults, Good luck with your weird sex life. Have fun, Professor. It's like weird, not even sex life. It's like weird co-parenting life. Um, In a way, kind of, I guess I enjoyed this article more than some of my friends who were deeply frustrated with it and just thought it was an extraordinary waste of space in The New Yorker. (laughs) But but I, I actually kind of liked it, maybe because of the phase of life I'm in, but it kind of it was a real argument for how just being flexible and kind of chill and understanding actually is an amazing way to move through the world and probably saves you a lot of pain. Like the dude that comes off looking like unflappable is the ex-husband. You don't even know if he's dating right now. He probably is. He's chilling. He might be, his dating prospects might have improved dramatically since the article because there might be women looking at him and thinking, I want to be with a dude that chill. There might not be room in the house, but I'm going to try to get him. I'm going to try to get with this dude. (laughs) I don't know where I'll fit in this house. But no, it's amazing. I mean, he just rolls with it. At one point, they're doing, you know, a live philosophy debate at the University of Chicago, him and her after they're divorced, and she's living with the grad student, and they're debating um, the subject of divorce. And she makes it increasingly personal. And he just stays on this high level of dissociating however he personally feels about the issue and just engaging what interests her. It's like he's, he comes across as like an extraordinary generous dude. Um, yeah. And a kind of model of how, you know, happiness or, or flexibility is a way of not just protecting other people, but protecting yourself. Although, you know, 
another reading on it is that he's totally, totally cucked in this situation and, <laughs> and he's quite a tragic figure. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? One of the two. Either he's ascended to a higher philosophical plane or he's totally cucked. It's, it's yeah. definitely one of those two, though. I found the article interesting, you know, on that late note. I don't know. Uh, have we beat that one to death? Uh, yeah, I think so. Last thing I want to say on it, it just because I want to push people towards this sketch, it reminded me of an SNL sketch, which is on YouTube, called Funny New Comedy. It's got Tom Hanks in it. It's a, uh, it's just, I don't want to over-describe it, but this article really, really reminded me of that sketch, which I think is a great sketch about uh, the state of comedy these days on TV. So there. Now we've beat it to death. This was a, this episode, I'll go ahead and say it, it was too French. It was a little too French for my taste. <laughs> Some is good. This was too much, I think. So we'll, we'll try to, we'll try next to, week. yeah, you're going to be in New York, New York next week. Yeah. That's a good start. That's a good start. <laughs> Usually the trash and rioting in New York is marginally lower than Paris. Yeah. It's at an even keel. It doesn't spike up and down as much. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. Well then, uh, I look forward to having you back stateside and uh, have a good week. Bye. (laughs) 